welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 5, recorded on June 11th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Happy episode 5 to you and uh, tip of the hat. This isn't the biggest, most active news week <laughs> that we have had since we started the show, but you still managed to dig a few nuggets out of the ground and we have some good stories. Should we kick it off with some Ubuntu news? Yeah, pretty Ubuntu heavy to start with. Um, first of all, they are transitioning to GNOME Shell. Well, that's not news, but they've actually started now. The daily images have got rid of Unity and are using GNOME 3, GNOME Shell. But the slight difference is they've actually got buttons on the left still. Oh my gosh, that's what you go for immediately. Oh, of course. Of course, they would probably cite continuity. It is a little newsworthy because we all thought this would be landing in the LTS. I know it's it's been announced since, but it's just a reminder that 1710 is going to be the switch over to GNOME 3. So they got the buttons on the left, but they've also made a decision, not that one, but they've made a decision that I'm really happy about. They're going to switch from LightDM to GDM, which has worked better for me on my GNOME setups too. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense, really. They wanted to just simplify things, didn't they? Yeah, and I think it also came down to something about their guest session support. It would have just taken a pretty big amount of work to add the support to LightDM, and it takes a less amount of work to get it working in GDM. And they might not have it in 1710, but they'll have the guest sessions back by 1804, they suspect. Yeah, and I mentioned the buttons kind of half-jokingly, but I think that it does show that they're already thinking about putting their personal stamp on it. Mm. They don't want it to be just totally stock. I think you're probably right. The feelers they've been putting out on the surveys on OMG Ubuntu kind of indicate their intention too. Here's something I take as a good sign out of all of this though. Canonical is playing host to a fractional scaling hack fest for GNOME in its Taipei offices this week. GNOME developers and Ubuntu developers are in attendance and they've scrounged together the high DPI monitors from all around the office to plug into their GNOME machines. And this is real good, like actual adult scaling. What we have right now in GNOME is either double scaling or no scaling. It's baby scaling. It's first step scaling. It's adorable scaling. It gets you there. But this is grown up adult scaling where you can actually fractionally scale it up and down. Yeah, now I can't afford a 4K monitor, so high DPI is just a distant dream for me. But having spoken to Ike quite a lot about it, he said that Unity was the best experience that he'd had. And so it's good to see that we're not just going to lose that because the Ubuntu team are actually going to plow that knowledge and experience into GNOME and try and improve it, which it kind of goes against a little bit against what I had originally said, that they wanted to just offload the development totally to the, the GNOME team and just offload the desktop. But it, it shows that they are still investing in it. And that's what people had hoped, that they would invest in the desktop. They're adding a lot of the Unity type features that people really required to GNOME 3. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be better as a result of it. Also, they're testing X Wayland compatibility, which seems like a pretty good thing. Looking forward. Yeah, because Wayland, although it's it's getting there, and if you look at Fedora using it as default, uh, it, it seems to be working well for most people. But I do see on Google Plus some people having issues with it still. So I, I don't think you can fully expect Wayland to just work completely. So, yeah, I think it is something that they're going to need to work on. I mean, that was, funnily enough, the thing that always held Mir up, wasn't it? The XMIR support, because they knew that they would have to have four people to actually use the thing. And that's what made it never quite reach um, stable status and default. 
By the way, if you're grabbing the daily ISOs right now, you'll find that Unity 7 is no longer default. It's not even offered as an option from the login manager. However, if you're doing an upgrade, the packages are still in the repo. So you'll still have Unity 7, and they are available from the Universe Archive if things don't go smoothly for you. Do you think that's an indication that it's not going to be there? On, because there was a little bit of confusion as to exactly what was going to happen with it. They'd said that it would be there for people upgrading. But I mean, does this mean that it's just definitely not going to be an option for people installing it new? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's going to be in the universe, so you could prob- there'll probably be a meta package that you could install to bring it down. Mm. Yeah. But otherwise, they're just moving on. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And maybe others want to move on to something like Lubuntu. Yeah, so it turns out Lubuntu 17.10 will probably ship two different spins or versions. One LXDE, which is nothing new, hasn't changed for a long time, and the other LXQt. Mm. Now that's the one I've been following with a little more interest, just because it's newer, a little more newsworthy, and also uh, I'm a big fan of Qt. Yeah, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Qt. Wait, 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 I, wait how, what, what, what? How do you just, what? Well, I just, there's something about the way it looks by default that I just don't, like uh, yeah, and okay. I prefer GTK, but at the same time, I can see the way GTK is going and how much churn there is there, and how difficult it is to follow the, the development of it. Yeah, I think you would be surprised too. There's some cute apps that uh, are cute, and you don't realize it the way they the way they look. Well, yeah, VLC is a, a prime example that you, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily notice that. But I am following the LXQt development. I have been on and off. It's been a little while. And when I heard about this, I thought, well, I'll have a look at the um, daily ISO. It's Lubuntu Next, they're calling it, which is kind of like the Ubuntu Next used to be with the uh, uh, Mir by default of Unity 8. And I span it up live thinking I'll just have a, a quick look at it. Uh, this is on my test laptop that's got uh, quite a few different partitions on it. And I think that what I'm about to say speaks volumes. I installed it. <laughs> I thought yeah, I want to see more about this. Really? Uh, I want to check it out more. And 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 you as a as a devout XFCE user were drawn to this. Yeah, I, I thought, hey, this is really quite good and quite promising. I mean, it's buggy. It's nowhere near a daily driver. I mean, it's it's a daily ISO. It's not supposed to be. It's not even alpha yet. So you're not going to rely on it yet. But to to check it out and yeah. to see how it's working. Right. And it's a good time to give feedback. They're 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 specifically looking for feedback on their new default applications. Like they've switched over to GNOME MPV as the default media player. They've also changed around some of the network management stack. So we might want to might want to help them test that and give them feedback. Now would be a good time. But yeah. you like it. You are you considering when the final ships you might uh, you know give it an install? Well, I will definitely install it. Probably not on my main machine. <laughs> oh to no, start of course, with. of course. Oh, of course. That's that's why I have this other machine <laughs> to test off on. But sure. yeah, it, I, I am very impressed with the progress. As I say, it's I've been following it on and off, and it it must have been at least six months since I looked at it last. And I think it has iterated a little bit in that time, and it does seem to be improving. And you, you get the kind of benefits of Qt without the complexity of KDE and, uh, you know, Plasma. And the thing is that I can make Plasma how I want it, which is essentially quite similar to LXQt, 
or I could just use LXQ. Mm-hmm. Why? Why bother? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that too for some of our production systems. That was my exact line of thinking. And while we're just like swimming deep in the Ubuntu universe, let me put this out there: if a lot of the spins of Ubuntu existed simply to offer an alternative to Unity, once Unity goes away and GNOME becomes the default desktop. It seems like there's less and less motivation for some of these distributions to exist. And now our focus might be shifting to ones that provide something completely different than Ubuntu GNOME. And that would be really low resources or super small footprints, um, optimized for appliance-like workloads, things like that. Do you agree? Like, maybe we're seeing a new opportunity for Ubuntu derivatives here? Well, I don't know. I think that you've always had the traditional desktop. Look at Ubuntu Mate. The, mm. the alternative to GNOME, which is a, a whole new way of doing things. It's not that new to a lot of people, but it, in the kind of grand scheme of it, the long timeline from 20 plus years, it is still a relatively new way to interact with a computer. And people who don't want to use that new way have got plenty of options. From KDE Plasma, which is at the higher end of the resource scale, through Mate and XFCE, and now down to LXQ. So for me, it's it's not necessarily about these different workloads and implementations and, and what you're actually going to do with it. It's in some ways just more about wanting it to work a certain way. Yeah, and it's about what you want to devote your computer's resources to and time and uh, and and also what matches your workflow. I just to me it seems like some of these lower resources distributions are appealing to me more than ever. You get some you get you get a standard base but a really nice light lean desktop. So I'm following LXQ with quite a bit of interest. But yeah, like I said, now is a good time to jump in and give them the feedback about the default apps and keep an eye out for new artwork coming down the pike very soon. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Thanks to Linux Academy for sponsoring Linux Action News, and thanks to you for visiting linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there and sign up for a free seven-day trial. Now, this is a platform to learn more about Linux. It's a perfect sponsor for this show. They have the system. This is all they do. They focus on Linux, open source, and the ecosystem around it that really makes you money and pads the resume, like OpenStack, Azure, yeah, Azure, AWS, all of that like stuff around Linux. But you can start at the very core, learn about the basics on the command line, get involved with their self-paced, in-depth video courses, their hands-on scenario-based labs, they spin up servers on demand when you need them, real human being instructors are available when you need help, and a course scheduler that matches your busy schedule. Just go to linuxacademy.com unplugged, sign up for a free seven-day trial, and just check it out and see what you think. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Linux Action News, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. So back in October last year, Canonical announced the live kernel patching service for Ubuntu 16.04. Fast forward to this week, and they have announced that it's now available for Ubuntu 14.04 as well. Yeah, users of Ubuntu 14.04 with the 64-bit kernel can get their live patch service for th- for free up to three machines. Yeah, or you can register a few different accounts. <coughs> <coughs> I'm sorry, cough, what? Uh, yeah, or you can go to their Advantage program at ubuntu.com slash advantage, which honestly, if I was in a, a business, I would probably do that. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it would be ridiculous to do it the other way. <laughs> but it's interesting that they're doing it for 1404. It shows that they do care about long-term support. Just look at 1204 being supported. You can pay them for a bit of extra support on yeah. that. So they, yeah. they really are trying to compete with Red Hat, basically, aren't they? I suppose it does suggest that. To me, it also suggests that they have an XP effect happening with their old releases. I would bet you that a dirty secret of both Red Hat Enterprise Linux and Ubuntu LTS is that once users install them, they essentially don't upgrade those systems until they replace those systems. Well, that's what happens in Enterprise, doesn't it? Generally, whether it's Windows or Linux. It wouldn't it be nice, though, if we could keep these systems patched and current? Now, I'm not trying to sit here and advocate that change just for change's sake needs to happen, but I am trying to suggest that there is a certain level of technological progress between major Linux kernels and major demons that would be beneficial for the Internet in whole. And so in moderation, where it made sense, it would be nice if these systems could have been upgraded much easier and not have to sit here and inject code into live memory to keep them secure. I grant you it's a clever solution. It's definitely one I would sign up for if I was in a business. I'm impressed by the service. I just think it's 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 an unfortunate hack that we've we've sort of back-engineered into to replace live code and memory because we can't upgrade our systems. It sounds like you're advocating Arch in the Enterprise. I'm not. I am not doing that. (laughs) I'm not saying that. However, if you do, I suggest you install the LTS kernel. (laughs) That's Chris's hashtag Arch advice. But the idea of live patching your kernel doesn't sit very well with me. Oh, really, Joe? I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're shocked that I'm negative about this. Well, look, put it this way. If you've got infrastructure that is so critical that you can't spare 30 seconds to reboot it, then why don't you have a redundant server that you can switch to instantly? That's the way things are supposed to be done, right? I suppose in an an ideal universe, that's probably true. Um, So you switch to your redundant server, do your upgrade, reboot, make sure all your demons come up, everything's working fine, switch back to it, and then do the same thing for your redundant server. I bet every different enterprise has their scenario. I could give you mine. So take take for example here our, our OBS streaming system. If we were to reboot it, our stream goes down. Not a big deal, but there's no way to, you can't just move another system in there and continue that stream. It, there's no, you could, you, I guess you could engineer a really complex system, but there's so much engineering involved to make that happen that it's just much easier to have one system streaming it that gets patched properly. It, it's just a whole nother scale to try to have a redundant OBS system that we could switch to in real time to keep our stream online to uh, apply a patch. So I could definitely understand how systems that are involved in transactions or record keeping or time keeping or log keeping or video monitoring where they're recording something, it's really hard to do a replacement system. Not everything's web servers and databases. True, true. And I suppose this is more aimed at the smaller enterprise than the, the kind of people who don't have the money to have redundant servers for everything. Perhaps, perhaps. I, I, would, I would think this is a killer service for small and large business. Really, in, in any kind of large enterprise, in my experience, there is a rigorous change management process when you want to install a patch and reboot. Uh, it involves, in my, in, for my particular experience, it involved creating a change request form, which was a three-page form, and then I had to attend a Thursday weekly meeting where I had to advocate my change in a group of people that were just there to essentially ask me why I really needed to do this and nitpick every little decision. And then once I advocated the change, I could then go schedule a time in off hours to install the patch within the next week. And then I had to, sh- I had to attend the following change control meeting to advise the committee on how my change had went. 
this all changes if you can start swapping code in and out of memory in real time. I sign up for this service. I let it go. I, I do one change control request to enable the service and do its business, <laughs> and then I'm done. Yeah, but is that going to wash with them? Are they going to accept that? I think so. I think if you pitch it right. I mean, I realize it, it's, it's a, it's a, it, to you it seems like a, a huge difference, but to them it's, I mean, to you it seems like a small nuance, but to them it's a huge difference between actively, actively installing software, rebooting systems, making all, you know, because that, that entire process involves coordinating with multiple departments and people, whereas this is something that just happens transparently in the background. But surely that isn't going to go down well, making changes transparently in the background, even if it is security patches. It sounds like that all that bureaucracy that you were talking about there, uh, they wouldn't uh, be happy with it unless they just don't know what's going on. I, I suppose it, if you sell it right, as you say, if yeah. you just say to them, it's a small change. It's a bit of a straw man's argument in my case, because what I'm really trying to say is there is probably, there, what I'm trying to illustrate to you is there's there's really a large range of businesses I think this would be beneficial to large bureaucracies, to small businesses that can't just afford um replacing infrastructure or setting up uh, redundancies. So I do think it has a broad appeal. I even, as as a home user, I got I kind of wonder, like maybe I'd want this on one of my systems, or maybe this system, the system you and I are communicating over right now is an, is an Ubuntu LTS system. Maybe I should put it on this, because I don't often reboot this computer either. But then if you have, say, eight, nine months of patches coming in, and then the power goes out, and you start your system up again, and you haven't tested a reboot, what happens then? What happens if something goes wrong? You've got no <laughs> idea which of the, the patches over the last nine months it was. Well, I don't think it's quite as dramatic as that. I think it's uh, very selective fixes that go in. Um, and so you're not patching the user land. You're not, you're not, I, don't, I don't even know if you're revving the package of the kernel. I'm not sure. I, I should experiment with it to actually get a better understanding. But I think there's still like app get update commands you would install, there would be a whole other set of updates that are separate mm. from what you would get in the live patch. The live patch is, I believe, things that are more critical, maybe remote vulnerabilities or super, super critical local vulnerabilities that involve privilege escalation, something like that. I think it's pushed over live patch. I think there's only been a few things pushed over live patch, but again, this is just my rough understanding. And lower critical vulnerabilities or user land vulnerabilities are still patched via the traditional package management system. But even a small server that's not doing too much, every time you do updates and you realize you need to reboot it, are you telling me you don't get a little nervous feeling when you oh, reboot sure. it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Even my desktop. And that's part of the thrill. I'm a bit of a thrill seeker, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you've, as I say, if you've had nine months of patches, how much extra nervous energy are you going to have when you reboot it finally for something else? Yeah, I really should play with this, shouldn't I? I should use this system as an experiment because I wonder how that works. If you're live patching, and these are questions we could probably ask somebody at Canonical too. I'll, maybe I'll do some digging. If you're live patching, do they do they remain after reboot or do you have to install packages for them to apply? As far as I know, they do stay yeah. afterwards. But yeah, yeah we, we should double check that, yeah. Okay, I will, I will try and... Uh, I don't know where I'll update you, but I'll update you somewhere. Now, this isn't uh, the only way to keep your system secure. If you uh, are a big subscriber to the way Docker sees the world, they have Linux Kit, which is a project that is incubating several technologies to advance Linux security. Yeah, they announced this back in April, but we didn't really learn that much about it at the time. And now more details are coming out, and it looks like they're taking kernel security very, very seriously. 
Yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. I, I, I wonder if this isn't Docker trying to rebrand themselves very seriously as investing in security because I think they've gotten a bit of a reputation for not taking security deeply serious. Well, there's kind of a meme, isn't there, that people download random Docker images and then never update them and stuff. And so you've got these uh, insecure Docker images running left, right, and center. There's that. There's also the way that things were originally set up. I don't think there was uh, signing and, and whatnot that people gave them quite a bit of uh, crap for on the internet. So I think maybe this could be somewhat of a response. But either way, whatever the motivation is, it seems like the results could really be great. They have a series of projects. Some of them, some of you out there probably have heard about. We've covered WireGuard on Linux Unplugged before. This is sort of a new VPN partly built into the Linux kernel, so it's very high performant, whereas OpenVPN is primarily in user space. But it's also using a new type of cryptography. It uses the noise protocol framework that like WhatsApp uses. So a lot of fans of WireGuard out there. And it's pretty great to see Docker folks putting some effort and development behind it. Do you think their new attitude to security comes from the fact that they have got more competition now? Yes. Yes, I really do. I think, in part, they are trying to maintain their hold on this container space by really being the builder of a platform for containers. Now, i got to stop right here before we get all heady and start talking business terms about containers. Let's get real for a second. Containers are commodity stuff here. They're relying on technology that's built into the Linux kernel, their namespaces, they're relying on technology either in system D or things that they bolt on. But it's something that comes baked into the product now. Everybody's Linux can do it. So Docker doesn't have anything unique to bring to the market there because it's everybody's got it. But what they do have is all of the ecosystem and tools around it. If they can be a platform provider where with Linux Kit you can plug in your own components, but still have association with Docker or the Docker Hub, then, they, then they're still in the game. Then they can add a real layer of value, quote-unquote, that's what they like to call it, to the container, quote-unquote, space, which is otherwise just commodity software now built into Linux. But what about their branding problems? You mean around Moby, their project to build your own Docker environment? I'm not sure. I am still confused by Project Moby and all of it. Yeah, you've got Docker, Moby, and Linux Kit, yeah. which if you really dig into it, you can understand. But I think a lot of people are struggling to understand where it all fits together. Yeah. I'm Out of all of it, Linux Kit's the one I like the most because I like that the fact that they're throwing real development hours behind some important projects. There's another one in here that I think's neat called Landlock, which is essentially a competitor to SE Linux and AppArmor. It's a quote-unquote LSM, Joe, which stands for Linux Security Module, and it's being incubated by Linux Kit. This Landlock one uses extended Berkeley packet filters to hook small programs into the Linux kernel. <laughs> Do we really need another one? I, apparently, we need one that's been designed for the container age, Joe. We need one for the container age. <laughs> mm, that's what I, they say. I don't know if I'm convinced. Yeah. Well, a Google developer has launched a kernel self-protection project in 2016, and now it's being incubated by them. Uh, I don't really understand what it does. This one sounds pretty cool, though. It's working on protections to help mitigate memory corruption risks. Well, one undeniably good thing about this is they are committed to pushing all this stuff upstream, so everyone's going to benefit from it. Yeah, speaking of everyone benefiting, I think one of the most important open source projects out there right now is the GNU PG project, and they have a fundraiser, a rally. Yeah, rather than just one-off donations, they're looking for more of the kind of Patreon-style model. They want people to donate a couple of bucks a month to keep the development going. 
which is a good idea, really, because it's all well and good to raise big chunks of cash here and there. But if you can just get a little bit coming in every month, then you've got a much better idea of how you're going to balance your books and how many developers you can employ. Yeah, you can budget. Yeah, exactly. Budget, that's the word. Uh, Now, it's not something that I, to be honest, use that regularly. I don't use it for my emails, but it's something that projects that I use, use, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, they make a great case in here, too, that even if you don't personally use GNU-PG, journalists around the world right now are being trained on using GNU-PG to communicate securely with their sources. That is massive. If you just look at it from the activist, journalist, and lawyer's standpoint, it's worth it even if you don't personally use it. But I think right now, at this moment in time, it is a more valuable project than ever. And there are multiple governments discussing getting backdoors to encryption, about the going dark phenomenon, quote-unquote, that James Clapper was just quoted as saying last week. There is an there is an active effort to pressure encryption manufacturers or whatever the term they're going to use, they're going to come up with some term to give governments backdoor access. That means open source projects like GNU-PG are going to be under more pressure than ever and more important than ever. And they have modest goals here. Their primary goal is to fully fund three developers. And they, they're looking for 15,000 euros per month, which seems a little low to me for three developers, but that's going by the standards here in the States. They say their stretch goal is twice that, 30 euros, 30,000 euros per month. Again, that's, that's like here in the States, that'd be like uh, maybe 400,000, 420,000 a year to pay for three developers. That would, that would pay for maybe two developers here in Washington. Uh, depending on their position. I mean, when you're working on something like GNU-PG, these are not beginner These are not beginner jobs. Yeah, this isn't a bit of Python, is it? Yeah. This is some serious stuff. I honestly would have liked to see, see them put these numbers higher because I think they deserve this work, and it's one of the most vital, vital open-source projects right now. It's my personal opinion. This is more important than ever. Uh, and so you can go to gnupg.org slash donate if you'd like to get in on the rally. I hope they make it. It's, it's, it seems like a pretty pretty worthwhile project. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. All right, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the show every week and slash stickers for the new show sticker. Yeah, I've got mine on the way. I can't wait to uh, stick it on my Chromebook. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.